Section 2 of Brain and Personality. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simona Perego. Brain and Personality, or the Physical Relations of the Brain to the Mind, by William Hannah Thompson. Chapter 2. Account of the Physical Basis of the Mind Two fundamentally opposite conceptions have existed about the relations of the brain to the mind, which may be illustrated by comparing the brain to either one of two different instruments or mechanisms for producing music, a Heneholian harp or a violin. Thus, if the brain may be regarded as an organ from which thoughts proceed, the question then becomes, do thoughts arise in it as musical sounds flow from an Aeolian harp or as they come from a violin? Both the Aeolian harp and the violin are constructed by threads of catgut stretched over apertures in a wooden box. The music of the Aeolian harp comes from it when it is placed where currents of air can flow through its threads, and its notes will then vary according to the direction, the strength and the velocity of the currents. The air which generates the music is a part of the whole outside atmosphere, and while each harp has its own peculiarities of sights, number of threads, position, etc., its function source has no peculiarity, but is one and the same in all. In like manner, some hold, currents of thought are excited in the brain by the incoming sensation transmitted from without by the vibrations of the various nerve fibers, which are specially adapted to receive impressions, and these vibrations in turn awaken those responses among the fibers and cells of the brain, which constitute feelings and ideas. On this view, a man's brain may be regarded as a specially constructed mechanism whose individual peculiarities in its working, as shown in his daily life, are all due to the arrangement of its material component parts. Some leaves give forth long, rich, harmonious, not true. Others, from unhappy disposition of their fibers, give forth little else than prolonged discords, and others a strange mixture of both. But all these individual or so-called personal characteristics are matter of cerebral structure, as this is acted upon by the innumerable nerve stimuli proceeding from the outer world. More or less defined conceptions of this kind about the relation of the brain to the mind are quite prevalent, particularly among those who empathize the influence of heredity in the genesis of individual or moral traits. The logical conclusion of this position is that the mind of the last analysis is the product of the composition and properties of brain matter, and its operations of whatever sort are reactions among the brain elements to the play of external forces. The other and essentially different conception is that the brain, if likened to a musical instrument, resembles a violin in that, however good it be as a musical instrument, and however carefully it has to be constructed in all its parts to become such an instrument, yet of itself it cannot give forth a musical note, much less take part in a complex symphony, without a musician to use it. Therefore, though no musicians can give us violin music without a violin, so no violin can be musical without a musician. It should be noted that this theory requires mechanism, 
and the complete integrity of the mechanism, quite as much as the other. In fact, the musical vibrations within the box depend so much for their qualities upon the wood out of which the violin is made that extraordinary sums have been paid for Stradivarius on that account alone. But though mechanism be such an essential element in both, the entrance of a wholly different factor in the case of the violin, namely the musician, makes it possible to harmonize the analogies to brain function drawn from these two instruments. In the one, we have only the effects of external forces acting upon material things, while in the other, we likewise have material things, but the effects come from a source entirely distinct from and wholly independent of them. We only need now to follow up each of these views of their inevitable conclusions to recognize how far apart they are. The one regards the mind as wholly of the brain, and hence the mind can have no existence apart from the brain. The other regards the brain as nothing more than the instrument of the mind, and no instrument can possibly be identical with the agency which uses it. As the brain itself gave no least sign of its activities, so much so that, as already mentioned, the world for ages did not suspect that it had any connection with thought or feeling, it was natural that the discussion should center first about the terms mind and body. As regards the mind, the processes themselves of thought appear to offer in their genesis and sequence the only elements for examination. Metaphysicians, therefore, have laboured at the problem for centuries, but without coming to any agreement, one chief reason for their failure being that in their methods of investigation they have had no relying upon introspection. But the difficulty with introspection is that it is like a man trying to lift himself by his own bootstraps. As our mental processes both begin and end within ourselves, they offer little which is objective for us to go by. We need instead some external fulcrum to draw upon for satisfactory inferences. Such a fulcrum seems at last to be promised to us by modern discoveries connected with the brain itself, in its relations, and an organism to certain defined mental functions. This was not possible so long as the brain was regarded as a single organ working as a unit, with the same relations in all its parts to consciousness and thought that the hair cells were ever located in the lungs bear to respiration. Look at us, the, the physiologist with the brain before him was even worse off than the metaphysician, for nothing could be more undemonstrative to mere inspection than healthy brain matter. Physiologists, but therefore, were obliged to investigate the brain, bit by bit, to find whether some parts of it were more connected with certain physical functions than others. After the most exhaustive experiments were made on the brains of living animals, certain important facts were demonstrated which have most direct bearing on the problem. Moreover, these experimental deductions have been further confirmed by observations of the effect of local brain damage caused in men by injuries of disease. By this means, it is now proven that the grey matter of the brain surface is specially arranged to subserve certain specific physical functions only in certain localities in its substance. 
It is not the whole brain which sees or hears, but only particular limited areas to which the consciousness of sight and of hearing respectively are confined. Likewise, the voluntary movements of each group of muscles in the body have been found to proceed from central well-defined starting points on the brain surface, and these are so well demonstrated that the organs often know by noting what muscles are implicated just were to open the skull with his trephine so as to find a lesion or injury in the brain. On these grounds, the inference seems probable that every special physical function is observed by its own special seat in the material organ of the mind. Hence, by these discoveries, we do seem to have come into possession of really objective facts where before everything was subjective. Because nothing could partake more of the nature of an objective fact than the identification of an area of brain matter with a given brain function, by that function becoming invariably impaired according as its brain places damage. We propose, therefore, to discuss in the following pages the bearing which it is now demonstrating the relations of brain structure to the mental operations have happened to opposite views above state of the relations of the brain to the mind. Fortunately for the general reader, the essential facts building upon our present discussion can be readily demonstrated and easily understood. All are agreed that as far as the brain is concerned, the gray matter of the brain surface technically called the cortex, is the ultimate seat of all processes connected with sensation and thought. This gray matter consists of a continuous layer, whose average thickness is from one-twelfth to one-eighth of an inch, of a soft material of a very complex structure, in which are embedded immense numbers of little bodies, of various shapes and sizes, unfortunately called cells, for they are not hollow. Between these cells ramifies a network of innumerable fine grey fibers. To save space, this layer of grey matter is everywhere folded upon itself, as one would crumple up an handkerchief in his hand, so that the surface of the brain presents a number of furrows or creases between the folds. The chief furrows, however, are quite defined in their location, so that the main folds are called lobes, and the smaller ones convolutions, and these in turn serve to map out the different regions of the brain surface, which are then named according. Underneath and within the gray layer, and constituting the greater part of the brain mass, is the white matter, which consists of bundles of gray fibers contained within sheets of apparently an insulating material and white in color. Some gray fibers, however, have no coating, the function of the nerve fiber is wholly that of a conductor to and from the gray matter. On that account, the white matter is not, like the gray matter of the surface, the primary seat of any mental power. Thought in many instances, these fibers form important links between the various cortical areas, which seems to promote associated action between them. Here, therefore, in the gray matter of the surface of the brain, we have a material substance which is the defined seat of the conscious mind. For, as just stated, if one particular area of this gray layer be destroyed, sight is totally lost, though the eye itself in all its parts, with the nervous tract leading therefrom to the brain, behold intact. If another particular cortical area is similarly injured, hearing is abolished, 
to the ear with all its apparatus be unjured. The consciousness of sight or for hearing, therefore, is neither in the eye nor here respectively, but in these special localities on the brain surface. To use the phrase of an old anatomist, the grey matter is the animal. Regarded thus, this form of matter is the most interesting and important substance in the world, for it is the only matter which we know of that is directly associated with mind. There can be no question also that upon the integrity of this grey matter depends the integrity of all mental processes, for these can be proportionally perverted by anything which interferes with the physical conditions of the grey tissue, or by agents which derange its working. Thus, medical injuries of the brain in man often have been followed by peculiar mental disorders, sometimes including change in disposition or in moral character. The most striking illustration of this kind, however, and which can be produced at will, are furnished by the action of the brain poisons. In fact, a curiously interesting treatise might be written with the title of the Metaphysics of a Drugstore. Thus, opium powerfully stimulates those mental processes which are related to the imagination, so that the opium taker becomes intensely interested in his own trains of suggestive ideas. He is therefore silent and solitary, and thus contrasts with the alcohol taker, who has his feelings and emotions so stimulated by that poison that he would fain share them with other person, and becomes both familiar and talkative. One of the most singular in its effects on the mind is Ashik's or Indian hemp. When fully under its influence, the Ashik smoker can be made to entertain a most vivid sense of the objective reality of any suggestion which is made to his fancy. I once knew a party of Arabs who, while all drunk together with this drug, came to an opening in an overheard street in an oriental town toward which the moonlight streamed upon the pavement. The leader of the party took the moonlight for a pool of water and forthwith drew up his trousers to wade carefully through it and was followed by all the rest of them doing the same thing. Hence, by merely introducing certain defined substance into the bloodstream as it rapidly courses to the brain from its four great arteries, we can produce well-defined mental processes characteristics of the operation of these agents, or, in other words, sensations, feelings, and ideas specifically generated by these holy material things. In time, also, the persistent use of these agents seems to alter the personality itself. Thus, a confirmed drunkard finally becomes more unlike his former self than an average European differs from an average Asiatic. At first sight, such facts as these seem to indicate that the brain and mind are one. Change the state of the brain, and the thinker is changed accordingly. It is not surprising, therefore, that previous to the progress of discovery within the last 25 years, it appears as if nothing could be postulated about mental phenomena apart from the material condition of the mind's organ. The Holian Arp theory that sensation and thoughts are the products of vibration through a specially arranged mechanism seems to correspond most naturally with the facts. But unfortunately for this conclusion, all the facts adducted in its support can be adduced just as conclusion in support of the opposite theory of the brain being but an instrument of the thinker, 
as the violin is the instrument of the musicians who plays upon it. The most skillful violinist would draw for nothing but crazy sounds from his instrument if its chords were smeared with a grease instead of with rosin, and every mental disorder from delirium to coma can be paralleled by corresponding musical rearrangements due to poor structural condition in the violin itself, and not at all in the performer. It then would be from no fault of his, but solely from conditions in its instrument that every sound which he can get out of it is faulty. Indeed, the rightful direction of thought may often appear to be striving to regulate the brain of a drunkard, just as a musician would deal with a disordered instrument, and still most likely to do we see something hacking uh, to tease in certain state of insanity. We are thus left by this consideration just where we were before, and hence we must go further and deeper than physical changes in brain matter can take us to arrive at satisfactory conception of the true relations of the brain to the mind. End of section 2